Amen. According to the Shorter Catechism, when you ask the question, what is prayer, this is the answer that is given. Prayer is the offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will, in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins, and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Quite a a broad-ranging summary of the elements of prayer. And that definition, I would say, is 100% accurate for the people of God, for Christians. But when you think about that definition, when applied to the prayers of Jesus, it needs a little bit of a modification. Because Jesus obviously never needed to confess sins. Jesus, as the holy and righteous one, never broke the laws of God, and so therefore his prayers were never mentioning things that he's asking forgiveness for, and also his prayers always contained the things that were agreeable to the will of his Father in heaven. He never asked for anything that was not agreeable, and therefore one of the reasons why we're so greatly helped when we listen in to Jesus' prayers is it helps us understand uh, one who is in communion with the Father and what it's like to pray in accordance to His will. Now, in our previous two sermons on our current sermon series, we're looking at the Jesus' praying for our church. And as we're continuing in John chapter 17, maybe you can find your way there in your Bible, John 17, page 1286 in a pew Bible, we've noticed in the two two previous sermons that Jesus has been praying that our church would be Uh, characterized by a united or unified church in verses 20 to 23 of John 17. Another thing that Jesus is praying for is our church will be joyful church, verse 13. And so this morning we're going to look at Jesus interceding and asking the Father that our church be characterized by another aspect, another feature that he is concerned about. We're going to begin reading in John chapter 17, verses 14 through 17. Now again, this is a long passage of the whole chapter is really devoted to Jesus' prayer. We're just looking at a segment of that prayer, and we're picking it up now in verse 14. This is Jesus praying. I have given them thy word. He's talking about his disciples, the apostles. I have given them thy word, your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, if I were to ask you to select a key word, what would you consider would be the key or the most important word in those few verses. I'm curious to which word you would select. As I've looked through it, I've thought to myself and I've underlined the word sanctify, which appears there a couple times. Jesus is praying that our church would be a sanctified church. He is praying that our church not be characterized by worldliness, but that we be a church that is holy. So I'm going to try to unpack a little bit of what I think Jesus is asking for here by 
asking a series of three questions. And as, as we ask the questions, then we'll try to find the answers, which again will only be a sampling of the kind of uh, full answers we could be giving. But just to try to uh, round out a little bit of idea of what he's talking about. So the first question, what exactly was Jesus praying for when he prayed for our sanctification? Well, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 17, it's interesting how Jesus approached his own Father in heaven. He says here, I am no, longer, I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Jesus spoke to the Father with the title, Holy Father. Over 50 times in the book of Leviticus. How many of you have made it through the book of Leviticus? Well, very good. I commend you. That's usually when most Bible reading programs usually sort of crash land about halfway through Leviticus and about uh, part of the way into February. You know, people say, well, I'm, I'm not going to make it any further. Leviticus, over 50 times we read the repeated phrase that says, I am the Lord your God, I am holy. Fifty times. And as Nick reminded us in the call to worship, the living creatures there in heaven endlessly and ceaselessly repeat in heaven the refrain, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holiness is a big deal when we think about God and His nature, His character. And the term sanctify, the term sanctification, comes from the similar word, all based on the same root, which means something that is separate. Something that is separate or something that is set apart. That's what it means to be sanctified or to be holy. It's something set apart, something that is separate. And we would therefore understand God fits that description. God is holy in that he is transcendent. He is uncreated, and therefore he is set apart from his creation as one who is unique. It makes absolute sense then that we would call God holy. But there's another sense in which he is holy. Not only that he is separated from creation in his uniqueness, but also he is separated from all that is profaned all that is sinful, that is indeed the opposite of what God is like. He is a God who is sinless. He is perfect in all his ways and not defiled. And so therefore, when Jesus is praying as the Son of God, and he's asking that his followers would be sanctified, what is he asking for? Is he asking that we would be, as finite creatures, somehow separate from the creation like God? No, that, that's impossible. We are finite. We have a beginning moment in time. And so Jesus, I believe, is praying there that his disciples would be set apart in the sense that we would be set apart unto him. That is, he's praying that we would be consecrated to him, that we would be dedicated to him, and that therefore we would live holy lives for his glory. That's what it means to be set apart for him and to live for him. And so in a sense, every believer is sanctified the very moment that we repent of our sins, like that little DVD was showing there earlier. When we come and repent and when we trust Christ and we trust Jesus alone 
to be our sin bearer and also our conqueror of sin, that is the moment which we are set apart unto God. We no longer are in the kingdom of darkness. Now we're in the kingdom of light. We're set apart as belonging unto God. And that's why Hebrews 10, we read something like this. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's a sense in which our sanctification was, it happened at one time in the past. A more clear expression of this is Acts 26. When believers are called, those who have been sanctified by faith in Jesus. It happened in the past, one time. We're set apart as belonging now to Christ. This is what theologians would call positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. That means it's once for all, it happened when we became a believer, and our standing before God changed at that moment, at conversion, and we're set apart to God, and forever we belong to Him. I remember 34 years ago, when I had the blessing of being set apart from being a single man to being set apart as belonging to my wife and she belonging to me. And that was, a, in a sense, holy matrimony. We were being set apart for each other, apart from all others, only unto ourselves. And so that's the picture of what, when we, when we talk about positional sanctification, that's one use of the idea of to be sanctified in the Scriptures. But the Scriptures have another use of the idea of sanctify, and it refers to an ongoing process. Not just a one time, but something that has a continuing action to it that takes place from the day in which we were regenerated until the day that we die and are called home to be with Christ. And this is what theologians would call progressive sanctification. It has a sense in which there's progress being made. There's, there's further being set apart than what we were previously, and there's an ongoing sense in which that takes time. It develops, and it is something that the change is gradually happening and reflecting more and more the character of the holiness of God in us. Verses that would teach that would be 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18, or Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, and things like that. In a sense, Christians are set apart unto God. It happens once. And therefore, at that point, we are now called to be different. We're called to be distinct. We're called to be set apart from our sinful thinking, called to be set apart from sinful actions, called to be set apart from sinful attitudes. In a sense, we're called to become who we are in Christ. And here's a helpful little verse. 2 Timothy 2.19 says this. 2 Timothy 2.19 Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. What's he saying? Well, everyone who names the name of the Lord is called to live a holy life. Called to live a holy life. So what was Jesus asking for in this? I think he was asking for the latter. I think he's asking that over a period of time, that God would so work in the lives of his people that he would make them more and more into the character of Christ, becoming more and more in a progressive sanctification, more and more reflecting the character of their wonderful Savior. That brings me now to a second question. Are you still with me? Are you still with me? Okay, all right, just checking, just checking. 
Some of you didn't have your coffee today. Second question, why is sanctification of God's people important to Jesus? Why, of all the things that he could be praying for, why is he zeroing in on this particular concern? Now, I think there's many ways we could answer this question. And, and I'll just warn you, this could be a two-hour answer. I'm warning you, but it's not going to be, all right? I'm just going to condense down a couple of things that I think could serve as helpful answers to this question. But it will help us understand why is this so important? Why is this rise on Jesus' level of priorities that his heart is burdened about this? Why is it so important to him? Well, let's consider several principles here. One reason we would understand that holiness or sanctification is important to Jesus among his people is because it is the purpose of his work of redemption. It's the purpose. That's where Pat read for us that passage in Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Here we go. That's all that God did. That, that's a purpose, in order that we would be what? Holy and blameless before him. That is the goal. That is the, the destination point as to what Jesus has put in motion now with his work of redemption. It is not merely to come and rescue helpless sinners from just the penalty of sin, although it did include that, praise God. The penalty has been paid. But Jesus' work of redemption is, includes also breaking the power of sin so that sin does not control us and force us into its it's uh, mastery and doing the patterns of behavior that we've always done all our life and we never can find any victory and, and, uh, and, and change over sin. But no, he's breaking the power of sin now and someday he's going to uh, transform us so that we only have the presence of sin in our lives. He's, he's intent on making us holy and blameless in his sight. Now, if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, it does make sense when you read Paul's comments about in the context of marriage, again, marriage is a portrait or marriage is a, is a depiction of what the relationship between Christ and the church is like. And he says in Ephesians chapter 5, it's interesting, you should look at this carefully, because he's explaining this dynamic of how the gospel is put on display through the marriage relationship. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul reminds us that human marriage, as a signpost for the covenant relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Notice what he says in verse 25. Christ loved the church. He didn't wait for the church to become lovable and for the church to finally uh, get its act together so then he could finally place his love upon her. No, he loved the church and did what then? He gave himself up for her so that, notice again the purpose, so that he might what? Sanctify her. That's the purpose of him giving himself for his bride. He might set her apart, that she might more and more reflect what he's like. And that he might, at the end of verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be, would be holy and blameless. So if you understand the culture of the time, a man would come and he would propose to a woman 
and they would, they would become betrothed, where they said, we are promised to be husband and wife. We will now deal with each other as if that is the reality. It will, won't happen, though, for a period of time until we wait till that day comes. But it's as if there's a bond that's already established. You remember Joseph and Mary were betrothed. It was almost as if they were married, but they hadn't come together physically yet. Uh, but the promise is made, and the, and the seal and the sense of the commitment has already been made. In a sense, that's where we are as Christ has now says, I'm committed to you. You are my spouse, the church, and says, someday I'm coming back for you. When I come back for you, I want you to be spotless and blameless and holy. And therefore, my intent is to work in you such that that will take place over a period of your Christian life. And that's why J.I. Packer, in that quote there in your notes, says that holiness is the goal of our redemption. If we lose sight of that, then we've lost sight of really one of the main focus points of Jesus' ministry. Much more we could say about that, but let's think of another reason as to why it's so important for Jesus to ask about having a holy church. Secondly, progressive sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ in our character, it is God's revealed will for us. Progressive sanctification is God's revealed will for us. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 1405, if you have your pew Bible. And notice this fascinating passage of Scripture where Paul makes it very clear for people who come out of a background in which they're not perhaps used to biblical ethics and biblical principles of how to conduct themselves, he's now going to make it very clear here, going forward, is what God's will is for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. There it is. God's will for you, God's will for me. You can, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you know for sure this is the will of God for you. You don't have to be in doubt. You don't have to question that. You don't have to take your Bible and make it fall open in different weird places. God, what do you want me to do? What is your will for me? You don't need to play those games. It's revealed right here. God wants us to walk in holiness of life. And it needs, and it's as a process, something that continues on. And so the revealed moral will of God is that Christians live out who we are. If I am a child of God, then I'm to live consistent with my new nature. I'm to live consistent with my new identity as a child of God. And there are many texts of scriptures that announce this glorious truth that Christians enjoy this new status, this new blessing of being able to say, we are adopted children of God, sons of God, and therefore I'm in this new family, I have a new uh, father in heaven, and therefore he asks me and invites me and gives me the privilege of being claimed as his child, and the gospel then is going to motivate me to enjoy God. It motivates me now to love God by obeying his commandments. And so I do that not because I'm trying to gain his approval and gain his love. I do so because I'm responding to the fact that he has adopted me and I've become a believer. And therefore, my motivation is to live for him and his glory. Some people seem it's hard to understand why following God's commands is something that is, a, is an expression of his love for us. Well, I'll think about my own children when they were young. I think a lot about them now when they were young because they're not around. And so I'm looking at somebody else's kids and thinking about a lot of the memories of seeing the years they grew up. 
And when they were growing up, I would tell them, listen here, don't play in the street. Now, is that, is that ruining their life? Am I causing them to, to be stifled and to not have uh, the blessing of being able to play when there's dangerous cars moving around at high speeds? You should see where we used to live in Virginia. We were right on a very, very, very busy street. Big trucks, I mean, constant traffic. And so we just made a clear rule. You never play in the front yard. You don't get anywhere near the street. Well, what happens if we say the rule to this one? I would also say you may not, you must not be careless around a campfire. There's something about boys and campfires that's like this attraction. I don't know what it is. But our two boys were intrigued with a campfire and anything they could find that wasn't nailed down, hey, let's throw that on there. You know, it's like they would just throw anything on that fire just to see what would happen, see if it burns, see if it melts, see if it whatever. And so I had to sort of instruct them and say, listen, guys, you've got to be careful with this fire. You don't want stuff flinging all over the place. You don't take something in the fire and throw it somewhere else. You know, you start somebody else's big fire. You don't pour things on here. So we had to make some very clear things. Now, is that was an expression of my love for them, and therefore it wasn't a sense in which the boundaries that I set for them were not meant to ruin their lives. The boundaries that I've set with giving my will or my, my commandments was designed to help them what? So that they might seek to enhance their lives. So they can fully enjoy the way life is meant to be lived. And so God provides loving directives to his children for our good and for his glory. And that is so hard for many people who are trying to understand who, what God's like. They just can't seem to, to understand that this is a part of his loving directives to his children. And so look at what Paul continues on in this 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 passage. He says it's God's will that we be holy or that we be sanctified. That is, and now he's going to explain what that looks like. He says it's God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality. What he's doing here is he's saying, here are the boundaries that are designed in love for you to help you avoid the things that God knows is not going to be a part of fulfilling the way you've been designed to function. It's the, it, he's trying to say, here are the boundaries that are meant for your good. Abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to possess your own vessel, your own body, in sanctification that is in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion. Lustful passion is the culture we live in that's a hookup culture. People just carelessly, without any kind of commitment, without any kind of significant uh, connection on any deep level, they just share their sexual intimacy with each other in a way that's shockingly inappropriate. And, they, and everyone now thinks it's normal now. And what Paul's saying here is, look, don't be like the pagan culture. That's the way people have uh, conducted themselves. He says, no, as a Christian, it is God's will that you become more and more characterized by the, the character of Christ and, and live within the boundaries of what God has set forth in love for your benefit and for your good. And then he says in verse, at the end of the, that verse, he says in verse 7, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Now again, where I grew up, there were rivers. Uh, actually, there's a river that runs right through 
downtown uh, Charleston, where I grew up, Charleston, West Virginia. And there's another river comes and meets it right there, and those two rivers converge. And I used to hear my grandfather tell stories before they put any kind of dams on those rivers, controlling the flow of that, that those rivers would flood when they would have tremendous amounts of rain. And my grandfather would describe, he remembers taking a boat down the main street where he used to lurk in the office building. There would be boats going down the street when it would flood. What's happening? The water would go over the sides of the river and go out and flood all the floodplain. And that's what we see in our culture today when many people say, I don't want to live by the constraints of God's standard, His boundaries that He's placed there in love. It spills over causing so much damage and destruction and ruining so many lives in the process. And so again, I, I'm trying to just suggest to you that the will of God, and that's just one area, there are many areas where God has revealed to us what his intention is in terms of living a life that is in keeping with his nature and to honor him as spelled out in Scripture. Another one that you find here, a reason why Jesus thinks this is important, is because he knows that holiness, or being fully sanctified, is the final destiny of his people. The final destiny of his people. In Revelation 21, I remember using this verse one time with a young man that I was talking to who was presented to me as having a a conscience that was hardened. He didn't care what anybody thought, didn't care what anybody uh, did or didn't do regarding his life. And so he was just constantly lying. He was uh, telling one fib after another and twisting stories and things. And, and I remember pulling this verse out and reading to him. And, I, and again, you want to understand, there are some people, the Scripture says, you'll never find them in heaven. Revelation 21, verse 8. Unbelieving, Abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Now why am I bringing out this verse? Because Hebrews 12 tells us that pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. The place of heaven is a holy habitation. It is the place where the holy God that we worship resides. And therefore, it is a place that is characterized by holiness. <laughs> and those who are in his presence have been made holy by the Lamb of God. And so part of our attempt in realizing that holiness is a big deal to God, he cares deeply that we become more and more characterized by that because he knows that that's the intent is that we become prepared to be welcomed into his presence so that we can enjoy this eternal bliss and communion because we are all on the same page. And that's why Colossians 3 says, we set our minds on the things above, and that serves as an incentive for us to live out the reality of who we are in Christ. We are wholly set-apart people called to live for His glory and live out the gospel in our everyday life. Now, this seems like a little bit of a heavy message on the high standards of holiness and the high importance Christ puts on it, I want to move now to a much more of an encouraging and helpful reminder in this passage uh, as we conclude here about Jesus praying for a holy church. What provisions did Jesus make to ensure our sanctification? What provisions did he make? 
If you're like me, you know full well you need help. And so when it comes to sanctification, thankfully Jesus not only prays for us to be holy, that's key right there, but he's taken specific steps to enable us to become holy, to be conformed to his image, to become more and more like his character. Look at verse 15 of John 17. Verse 15, Jesus says, I do not ask you, Father, to take these disciples out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, some people think that holiness comes by escaping the world. Just get them out of there. And so there are people who are of the mindset that say, well, the best way to move toward holiness is to have as little contact with the world as possible. Some people assume that if you have a, a hermit status and you're just sort of cut off from everything and everything that's going on and you're out of touch with anything that's going on in society, then therefore that will necessarily then move you in the direction of becoming more holy. I'm sorry, I don't, that's clearly not true. Clearly that's not what Jesus asked for. I'm not suggesting that we need to expose ourselves to the worst of the worst that the world celebrates. I'm not suggesting that at all. If you're hearing me say that, that's not what I'm saying. But clearly we know that the answer is not to merely withdraw from any kind of presence within the world. Because the problem is what? You can go to a Christian school and you'll find what? The same problems there because why? Because the human heart is where sanctification is worked out. Not what the kids of who's around you, it's what's going on inside of you. And so it's not just a matter of avoiding things, it's a matter of what's going on in the heart. So, what does Jesus then? He does not request to be taken out of the world, all these followers. He prays that they might be protected from the evil one. There's a spiritual battle going on. A spiritual battle for your thinking, because the evil one is a deceiver. He's constantly making you question God's goodness questioning the fact that if I do God's ways, then aren't I going to be robbed of life? Robbed of all the good things in life if I follow and have to give up all these things in order to follow Christ? Starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden. That's what Satan was trying to trick Eve into believing. You know, are you sure this is going to what you want to do? So I want to take a couple of moments here and look at these provisions of what Christ offered here as a, as a, as a real encouragement to us. Notice verse 19, first of all. Jesus says, for their sakes, for the sakes of these followers of mine, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Hmm, now that's an interesting phrase. Why is Jesus sanctifying himself? And by the way, that is the answer. Jesus' own sanctification. Why is he sanctifying himself? What does that mean? Well, it cannot mean that he's becoming more separated from sin, right? We already know that Jesus was without sin. It means, I think, that he is choosing to set himself apart to do the will of the Father as it pertains to offering himself as a sinless sacrifice for those who deserve to be put to death. And he's saying, I fully give myself to this and I will devote myself to fulfilling what the Father wants me to do. I will go ahead with this idea of laying down my life as a sinless substitute 
for those who deserve to be punished and judged for their own sin. Jesus sets himself fully aside to accomplish the revealed will of God in the work of redemption, knowing that his death on the behalf of sinners who deserve to be punished for their own sins is part of God's wonderful, gracious plan and provision for sinners like you and me. And so Jesus devoted himself fully to the redemptive work that the Father gave him to do. And by giving himself as a ransom and, and then rising from the dead for us, he has broken the chains of sin and shame. And then sin no longer then has dominion over us. It no longer has a, a mastery over us that says, you've got to do what I say to do. You've got to go sin. You've got to keep doing this and you can't break from this. No, that's not true anymore. Read Romans chapter 6. You see, the gospel provides me a new heart. The gospel says, I don't, I'm not under the mastery I used to be under. I'm now under Christ, my master. And therefore, it, it, he is enabling me not to be a person who's trying harder and harder to find acceptance with God, but, but because I have found acceptance with God by the grace of God, I now have a new desire to say, I no longer need to live like this. I don't want to live like this because I want to live in thankfulness and gratitude to Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a whole new way of looking at things, a whole new way of relating to the problem of sin's power in our own heart and life. And the gospel breaks that. There's much more I could say about that, but I want to look at another point here. It is not only Jesus' own sanctification, he offers himself fully, setting aside the will of God, but also Jesus then, in order to ensure the holiness of his people, he provides to them the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit. You say, where is that in this text? Are you looking in John 17? Well, it's not really there in John 17, but it's in all the words he said leading up to John 17, which is in chapters 14, 15, and 16. Just skip back to look, uh, John 16, 20, sorry, John 16, verse 12. Just to back a page. I have many more things to say to you, but cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and shall disclose it to you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, and he does this through chapters 14, 15, and 16. You'll find more instruction on the Holy Spirit in those three chapters than you will in almost all the Gospels. Why is that? Because Jesus is trying to help them understand that apart from the Holy Spirit, we don't have any hope of seeing change in our hearts, becoming more holy. And indeed, the scriptures that are the work of the Holy Spirit, they were the ministry that he's saying that the Holy Spirit was led to given so that the apostles would write the scriptures and therefore the reading of the scriptures is what tremendously helps us in our challenge of becoming more and more Christ-like and resisting the squeeze of the mold of the world. The scriptures are inerrant. The scriptures are inspired, that is, they're authored by God you, through human means, yes, and they are authoritative in all matters of faith and practice. And rather than adopting worldly patterns and worldly ways of thinking about sexual morality, which is very common now in today's world, people are, are just going to sort of define themselves as to what gender they are. 
That's how they're living apart from any sign of God and any kind of reference point outside of themselves. I will define myself in however way I feel like or whatever subjective way makes sense to me. And, and this is, again, further evidence of separating themselves out from authoritative truth. And so holiness, we find, is the fruit of serious application of Bible truth in our minds and then applied in living out our day-to-day life. And wherever you go and you see a decrease in the confidence in the Word of God, whenever you find there's people who doubt the truthfulness of God's Word, and that could be on a campus of even a college campus in today's society. There are many kids that go to a college campus and everybody thinks, oh, they're all Christians. Not necessarily. And the point is, many churches uh, may still have a Bible in their pew, in their pew rack, but, but they do not have a sense of a high view of the authority of Scripture in everyday life. And wherever you have that lack of confidence and submission to the authority of the Word of God, guess what you find? An increase in worldliness and an increase in the secularization of life. You see, the Holy Spirit plays this critical role in taking the Scriptures that have now been inspired by Him and He applies it to our life. He illumines and helps us understand it. So one thing I would encourage you as you're looking at the Word, and I hope you do have some time that you're investing in reading the Word, because you will not increase in the process of holiness if you're not in the Word of God on a regular basis. It's not going to happen. Because change happens in our thinking, and thinking is changed by reading, meditating, studying, applying, and reflecting upon the Word of God. There's no easy way around it. So we read then, I won't take time to read it, but in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, it says that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. But if we are a believer, the Spirit helps us understand the will of God, understand the mind of God. He helps us understand and make sense of the Word of God. One last thing I'll just say about the Holy Spirit, and that is this. If we think of holiness as just one long list of rules, don't chew, don't smoke, don't dance, don't... don't, I grew up with all those long lists of rules. That list is not going to affect you at all in making you more holy unless you have a heart that wants to become holy. Unless you have a desire that says, I want to become what God wants me to become. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Romans 8 is all about the fact that now we have this new new response that comes about in our hearts because the Holy Spirit now is pointing us to Christ. Look how wonderful Christ is. Look at His love. Look at His grace. Look at His goodness. Look at all that He's given you. And the response is to say, yes, Lord Jesus, I long to love you. I long to surrender to you. I long to submit to you. It's not, oh, I have to. Oh, I have to. That's not the way we live the Christian life. It's done out of a way of thankfulness, gratitude, amazement and appreciation for all that God has done to us in the gospel. That is what will help you become progressively more holy. And that's what the Holy Spirit is great at. It is the Holy Spirit will point you to Christ. Point you to Christ. Not a, bung, not, not a long list of rules. He points us to Christ. All right. Deep breath. Last point. Are you ready? Nobody's ready. Are you ready? Okay. Whew, man. All right. This may seem like a strange thing to say. Now I've really got your attention. 
I was thinking about this this week. I don't think I've heard hardly anyone ever talk about what did Christ provide us to help us move toward holiness of life as a benefit to us. It's found in Hebrews 12.10. Hebrews 12.10. I don't think hardly anybody, I don't know the last time I've heard anybody appreciate this as an element of, of goodness or some, some good provision that God has given to us. 14.32 in your pew Bible, Hebrews 10. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Now, maybe this is a little old-fashioned. I don't know how many fathers still discipline their children in today's world, but this was written at a time when that was fairly common, and that was the norm. And thankfully, that was the norm in my family, in my home growing up. He says, our earthly father disciplined us for a short time, but God disciplines us for our good. Now, we're not talking about beating on a kid, okay? We're not talking about abuse. We're talking about disciplining and chastising a child correctly and under control and in a loving fashion, and that God disciplines us for our good, watch this, that we may share in his what? Holiness. Discipline. Loving discipline, loving correction, loving chastisement is designed that we might share in His holiness. So many times when we are being disciplined or chastised by God, we are start complaining like, oh, what are you doing here? Again, I go back to the time when my father would sit me down. I'm so glad he did. My dad was such a, a wonderful man. He would, whenever I pushed the buttons with him, and stepped over the boundary. Uh, he had been a patient man, but he finally reached the point where he said, okay, he'd pull me aside. He'd say, son, this is going to hurt you. It hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I thought to myself, what are you talking about? Have you lost your mind? And at that time, I really did think he was saying baloney. That didn't make any sense. But it wasn't until I was a parent myself and began to have this great sense of concern for the long-term outcome of my children and the direction they were headed as they would lie right to my face, as they would defy me and my authority, ultimately defying God's authority. And I thought to myself, oh, don't you know, I'm showing you that I love you. And God in his love, he says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Amen? Of course. And yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness when it really trains us. Now, here's my point. What is the provision that God gives us? His loving discipline. His loving discipline. It is so easy to lose sight of God's promise that when we go through a painful time of discipline and correction by God, it's so easy to draw the conclusion and say, oh God, you've, you know, you've, you've really messed up this time and actually what god is doing is in love he is chastising us to train us to let go of our sinful ways to let go of us to encourage us to draw into deeper fellowship with him not to hang on to idols worthless idols he's helping us to let go of those so that we would hang on to him and enjoy him and i would also say that we as a church as a church family, we express our love for God and our love for our fellow church members by carrying out corrective discipline 
for those members whose credibility as followers of Christ is brought into question based on their current pattern of unwillingness to repent of ongoing sin issues. Because if a person persists in sinful pattern of life, they are misrepresenting the Savior that they claim to represent. And our church in love will discipline those who have publicly identified themselves as Christ ambassadors through profession of faith, that is, through baptism, and they have expressed their ongoing participation in the life of, of the church through their Lord's Supper, we will express to them a loving expression of concern for them by disciplining them. Why? Not to get rid of them, not to, get, not to push them away, but to draw them into what? Into becoming more like Christ and repenting of that sin, whatever the sin is, and therefore that they might become more holy. Let's pray together. Lord, it's uh, easy to talk about holiness. We can throw around terminology like progressive sanctification all day long. That's not going to change us, Lord, on the inside. But Lord, I thank you that you've given us the gospel. We thank you that you've given us yourself as a Savior to not only rescue us from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin that that just keeps pulling us toward wrong and pulling us now toward yourself. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us the Holy Spirit who not only changes our nature, but he opens up the Scriptures to us. Oh, what a treasure house the Scriptures are to us, Lord, containing such a wealth of help and instruction and, and guidance. Lord, help us to fully embrace the teaching of your Word. And help us, Lord, to know the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing us to Christ, in loving Him and appreciating Him and treasuring Him more than anything else, Lord, we're hanging on to that is idolatrous. And Father, I pray that you would also open our eyes to see that any correction and discipline you bring into our lives, Lord, is meant to make us more holy. Help us, Lord, and therefore, at those times, to surrender to you to repent as needed and to humble ourselves and to move toward Christ and to let go of some of the foolish things that we sometimes, Lord, choose to find our security in and refine us, Lord, as you see fit to make us more like Christ. As a church, Lord, as we go through a time of refining, we pray that you would help us to draw closer to Christ and we would exemplify holiness in our life more and more, not so that people would be impressed with us, but that they might be impressed with you and the wonders of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.